British, and uh, we went out, we left from the UK to go and serve as missionaries in, in Austria. And so we'll just get that distraction out of the way if you're trying to figure out today, wait a minute, I thought this guy was from Austria, and why is he speaking with a British accent? That's why. I'd like for us to turn together to begin today to the book of Acts. So if you find, if you have a Bible with you, Acts chapter 17, please. If you're here today, maybe as a guest for the first time, or you're not particularly familiar with your Bible, you have no idea where the book of Acts is, and you're scrambling around to find it, turn to somebody around you. I'm sure they'll be more than happy to be your Bible buddy partner for today and help you... Uh, find where we're going to be in the scriptures, because we are going to be jumping around today in a few different places. But I will be reading everything, so you can also feel relaxed and just sit and listen to the word of God being read to you, if, if that works. For a little bit of context here, Acts chapter 17 is a chapter of the Bible that unfolds, begins calmly, but unfolds rapidly into a very chaotic scene. So Paul the apostle and his missionary companions have been traveling through modern-day Greece. They've left the continent of Asia, crossed over into Europe, and now they're in Macedonia, making their way through, preaching the gospel, planting churches along the way. And at this point, Acts chapter 17, they reach Thessalonica, and there in Thessalonica, they preach the gospel. And we see a great multitude of both Jews and Gentiles respond to the gospel, believe the gospel. And at the same time, there is a prominent opposition that arises to the preaching of the gospel and those who were preaching the gospel. And that angry mob of opposition stirs up a violent, angry mob. It's a very uncomfortable situation. We, we read, if, if this was today, this would be headline stuff. It would be on the news. It's, it talks about how the whole city was in uproar. Let's read these verses together from Acts chapter 17. And we'll read from verse 1 until the end of verse 7. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, 
saying there is another king, Jesus. We see that volatile scene and these, this angry mob of, of men looking for the Apostle Paul. And no doubt their plan is clear. They want to find Paul and in this chaos that they've created themselves, stone Paul to death and bring an end to this gospel preaching message that was going on. But by the, the grace of God, the sovereign providence of God, they're unable to find Paul. And so we see how they just drag probably the next most prominent Christian, Jason, out and bring him before the rulers. And I want you to look again at verse 6, at this accusation, this thing that they say here. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And with these words... These people have just captured the essence of what the story of the Bible is all about. Because the story of the Bible is God's plan to turn this world upside down. And that is what we are going to be taking some time to consider together today. I think typically in this church, like my own, we would show up here on a Sunday and take a portion of Scripture and zoom in on it and, and just lay it out and understand it better. Today we're going to do almost the opposite to that. We're going to take a big step back and really consider this whole story of the Bible from creation to its fulfillment in Christ and just consider how all these stories and characters that we meet along this journey are all part of God's great, sovereign, eternal plan to turn this world upside down. And so, the obvious place to begin is in the beginning. And so, I'll read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You can turn there if you'd like to. You probably, many of you know it off by heart already. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how verse 1 begins and chapter 1 continues to show us that this almighty God is the one who created the heavens and the earth with purpose and in an orderly manner. And at the end of chapter 1, at the end of that creative process, it concludes with these words, then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And chapter two, in chapter 2 of Genesis, as the story continues, we find these two characters, Adam and Eve, and they are living in this garden that God has created, and everything is as it should be. It's wonderful. Man, kind, and God are in an intimate, beautiful unbroken relationship with one another. And nothing separates man from man. And nothing separates man from God at this time. Not even clothing. We read here, they were both naked and were not ashamed. There was just no separation between man and man or between man and God. They didn't need to go to a temple 
to meet with God and have relationship with God because the garden that they were in was itself a temple. It was a place where the Creator met together with and and fellowshiped with creation with Adam and Eve. And Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are describing for us and they're speaking to us about a world that you and I have never known. These circumstances are unfamiliar to us. And the reason why we've never experienced that is because what we read about here in Genesis chapter 3, as the story continues, we read about how mankind chooses to reject the truth of God in favor of believing the lies of a stranger. This serpent that shows up in the garden, this devil of old who begins to speak contrary to the word of God. Mankind in a unified demonstration of rebellion against God and rejection of his word chooses to embrace the stranger and believe his words and follow his instruction. And as mankind turns away from its creator, as Adam and Eve turn from God and they turn to this serpent, they become enslaved. They become bound under the power of the serpent, the power of sin, the power of death. And this good world that God has created falls, and we can say it falls upside down and lands right on its head. Everything's upside down. Everything is back to Sin has led now to a separation. And this separation becomes visible in at least two ways almost immediately. The first way is that Adam and Eve, they go and they take those fig leaves and they sew them together and they make coverings for themselves. And so clothing becomes the first symbolic way in which we see the results of sin. There is now a visible separation between Adam and Eve and between Adam and Eve and God. And the second visible demonstration of this separation that's taken place is that an Adam and Eve can no longer live in this place of unbroken intimacy and fellowship with God in this temple garden. And so they have to be sent out from the garden. And it looks bad, doesn't it? It looks like this Satan, this this serpent, the devil of old, has, has really won. He has just destroyed everything. All has been lost. Except we see how God responds to this scenario in perhaps a surprising way, a way that we wouldn't have expected such a holy, righteous, almighty God to act. He begins almost immediately with his word to speak. He begins to speak and to work, to put right, to redeem and to restore what this serpent has destroyed. God's good world that had been turned had been turned upside down by sin. 
But we see from the beginning, from chapter 3, that he has a plan, an eternal plan, to put right again and to restore and to redeem that which has been lost. And God's plan is born in the seed form of a promise that he makes in Genesis chapter 3. And I'd like us to look at this together. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here we find God is speaking and he's cursing Satan for his deceptions. And in cursing Satan for his deceptions, God says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. When Satan thought that the battle had been won, not only does God pronounce that this battle is not over, this omniscient, omnipotent God pronounces the inevitable defeat of Satan. God's promised deliverer, the one who would come and to redeem mankind to God, would be of the seed of Eve, a deliverer through whom, would God, through whom God would redeem his fallen creation. A deliverer through whom God would defeat Satan's power over mankind and free mankind from the grip of sin and the grip of death. A deliverer who with one crushing blow would end Satan's authority and power and rule over our lives. And into a world that had been turned upside down by sin. By the word of God being spoken to sinners, hope was born. Through the word and the promise of God, hope was birthed into this fallen, upside-down world in which we live. And as the story continues, we see how Eve bears a son and calls this son Cain. And without getting into the etymology of the name here, we can see that by calling this child Cain, both Adam and Eve expected, this is the deliverer. He's here. The one whom God has promised to, to, to free us from the power of the serpent has arrived. And it must have been a, a sweet thing for them to hold that innocent little baby in their arms and and, and to nurse Cain and just think, oh, finally, he's, he's here. But then he begins to grow. And we see that rather than growing in strength and using his strength to crush the serpent, 
Cain is angry, he's jealous, he's hateful. He uses his strength to murder instead his brother Abel. And it becomes clear that Cain can't even free himself from the power and the grip of Satan. And so he certainly can't be hoped in and looked to to be the one who would free anybody else. Cain turns out not to be the deliverer that Adam and Eve might have hoped he would have been. And the story continues and long generations begin to pass by and this deliverer doesn't seem to be anywhere to be found. Rather than being set free from the power of sin and death, it seems to be everywhere. And it's growing, and it's gaining strength, and it's gaining momentum, and it looks bad. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to read here from verses 5 and 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. This is perhaps the depressing picture of the extent of sin in this upside-down world. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart we can see the greatness of the power of sin in Genesis chapter 6. But the promise of God is greater still. We see the greatness of the power of sin, but the greatness of God's promise is greater still. And so, in His grace, God washes this sinful world with a flood. And he selects Noah and the family of Noah to be a fresh start, a new beginning for mankind upon this freshly washed and purified world. And what an incredible opportunity this is now for mankind. God himself has washed and purified the world, selected a righteous man, Noah, and here we have, in a sense, a new creation. A fresh beginning for mankind. A new start. A new kind of Adam. Noah now stands as the one in whom we can perhaps hope. And the question is, will this Adam, will he do a better job than the old one? Will Noah perhaps be the one to be that promised deliverer? Will he be the one to crush Satan's power so that we can be free from its grip? over our lives. And we just have to read the story to to figure out these answers, of course, because as soon as Noah gets off the ark, what do we see? Well, there is... He's drunk for a start, almost instantly, on the fruit of the vine. And there's a curse, almost immediately. He's cursing his his own grandson. And so after this purification process, after this fresh new opportunity, we see that mankind has immediately fallen, immediately 
Noah was absolutely powerless to crush the serpent. And this flood also was not sufficient to wash away the sin of the world. And yet God's promise was still standing. God's promise was still there for us to hope in. And we see God beginning to enact His promise by calling out this individual called Abraham. And God calls out Abraham and He makes to Abraham even more radical promises. There are too many for us to really consider even this morning, but one in particularly in particular, is of great importance to us. It's a promise that God makes to Abraham to bless all the nations of the world through him, through his seed. And what God is doing in that promise to Abraham is God is recommitting himself to the promise in the garden. God is making clear that we all understand that he will be faithful to this promise. He is promising to bring that deliverer who will bless all the nations of the world through this individual now, Abraham. We are to look to Abraham now and follow what God is doing in his eternal plan through the life of Abraham and his descendants. Okay, ready? Problem is that it seems to be a cruel trick. Because what does Abraham not have? doesn't have any descendants. He doesn't have any children. And not only is his wife barren, like if she was just barren, then God could have just done a miracle, right? But she's also beyond the age of being able to bear children. So this is a double problem for God. But as we continue to read the story, we realize God's not playing a cruel trick here. But rather, by orchestrating this very peculiar set of circumstances, God once again wants to demonstrate to us His His unwavering faithfulness and His own radical ability to hold His Word and to keep His promises. And so God Himself orchestrates these circumstances against Himself. He essentially paints Himself into a corner in order to burst out of it in a revelation of how able He is to keep the promise that He made in the Garden of Eden, no matter how it might seem to us, no matter how impossible it might seem to us at any point of our lives, at any point we're going through. If we will read this story, we will understand He is a promise keeping God and we can and must always trust the promises that he makes and we read in the story how God gives a child in a miraculous gift to Abraham and his wife Sarah and in Genesis chapter 21 just to keep tabs on where we're going through the story now Genesis chapter 21 God gives Sarah that promised son and they call him Isaac and 
Isaac, his existence on earth, his life is now a testimony to mankind that God keeps his promises. And from Isaac comes Jacob. And Jacob, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And God confirms through Isaac and through Jacob all the promises he's made before are now applicable and to be applied and followed through these men. And Israel has 12 sons and those 12 sons we know become these 12 great tribes. And there in Israel, sorry, in Egypt, Pharaoh, who, who was the most powerful individual on the planet, with all his military power and might, he seeks to do what? He seeks to extinguish the promise of God. He seeks to annihilate these people through oppressing them, through slavery in Egypt. And what does God do? He shows the might of his right hand. And with his almighty right hand, he protects and preserves his people because he's protecting and preserving his promise. He's protecting and preserving his word. He's protecting our hope of salvation and redemption. And in order to prepare these people to be his his people in this world. He brings them out of Egypt and He's leading them to a land that He's prepared for them to inherit. And along the way, He takes them to Mount Sinai. And there, to prepare them and equip them to be His people, He gives to them His law. He gives to them His Word. And this promised land that this promised people are heading into is once again a new fresh beginning. A new fresh start for mankind. This land becomes a new kind of, a new type of the garden of Eden. A land flowing with milk and honey. A place of blessing and abundance. And this people that God leads into and places into that land, they're, well, they're a new kind of Adam and Eve. And in this promised land, God does something radical. He promises to once again dwell with those people. To dwell amongst those people. Because in this land, there would be a temple again. A place where God would come and dwell once again amongst his people. And so like the, the flood, this was a, a new fresh beginning, a new opportunity. And the question arises as we are following the story, is this going to be it? Will Israel succeed where Noah and Adam failed before them? Would Israel be the one to crush the serpent, to defeat his power and bring that deliverance? Would it come through the law? Would it come through these people? 
And the answer, of course, once again comes quickly, very, very fast each time as we are reading through this narrative. Because before Israel even leave Mount Sinai, they are already beginning to turn away from the God who has just set them free from Pharaoh, set them free from slavery, provided for them miraculously. They're already turning away from that to worship idols. The law that God gives them, they neglect and they break. The temple that God gives them, they defile it. The prophets that God graciously sends to them to call them back, they kill them. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, we see a pattern repeating itself again and again and again. And the message becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And if you've been reading through all these things in the Old Testament, there's one conclusion that you should reach. We could say the, the whole message of the Old Testament boils down to this fact, and it's this, that no matter how many fresh starts, no matter how many new opportunities God gives to us, we, mankind, are utterly and completely unable, unable to free ourselves from this power that Satan has over us. We can't break these chains every single time, even under the best of circumstances. We'll fail to free ourselves. And nowhere is this message of the Old Testament more clearly seen and more emphasized than in the stories that we read about the finest and the greatest of Israel's people. So, for example, King David is probably somebody that we are all familiar with because he's like the hero of Israel. He's the finest that they had the mightiest military leader of Israel's history. One of the few godly kings as well that Israel had. And David's trust in God and his passion for God are simply spectacular. You know, there are things that we should look to in King David, and we should aspire to be like him in, in a great many ways. But even Israel's mightiest warrior king, at the very height of his military strength and power, with all the resources and, resources and riches that he had available to him, there was one enemy he couldn't defeat. There was one who he couldn't crush. And it was, of course, the head of the serpent. David couldn't free us from this power of Satan and sin and, and death. And he may have been a good king, but his life really epitomizes for us the fact that our best will never, ever, ever be good enough. It will never be sufficient to free us from the power of Satan and the power of sin and the power of death. And although many people were looking to David 
to be that one who would free them, who would be their deliverer. It turns out that David, just like the rest of us, needs a deliverer. And this is David's, something that David recognized. We're told that David had a contrite heart before God. He recognized the greatness of his own sin and the grip that sin had over his life. And he came to God with a contrite heart. And perhaps because of that, God speaks to David and recommits himself to his promise through David. And God begins to fill out this promise more so we can understand more about what this promise is. This coming deliverer would come through David's kingly line. This coming deliverer would himself be a king. And yet God says something radical because he says this king will be an everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom. And it Sounds great. An everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom. Okay, so David's not the guy that we can hope in, but from David, one of David's sons will be the everlasting king with the everlasting kingdom who will set us free from the power of sin and death. And so we look to David's sons, and David's sons come along, and again, very fast, our hope fades because we see David's sons and who they are and what they do. Under their leadership, the people of God are divided. There is civil war. There is more enmity than ever before between man and man. And under the godless leadership of the sons of David... Israel's devotion to God wanes. And their devotion to idols grows to an extent that we've never even seen before where now the people of God introduce child sacrifice and temple prostitution into their worship. And eventually, the time comes as it had before where judgment must come, where God must act, where God must do something. In the same way that God sent Adam and Eve out of the temple garden, we now see that God sends Israel out of the temple land that he had brought them into. And in the same ways that God had previously purified the wickedness of the world with the waters of a flood, God now purifies the land of Israel by bringing in the armies of Assyria and Babylon like a flood. And they wipe out the land and leave it desolate and destroyed. Israel's kings are dethroned. And the question arises once again, God, what will you do now about your promise? How? You've once again, God, have painted yourself into a corner. How will you fulfill the, your promise to these people, having scattered them throughout all these nations, having left the land that they were in desolate? Once again, God 
has orchestrated things so it looks impossible for him to fulfill his promise. And we may expect God to begin to uh, insert some letters into our Bible that might begin to explain to us why or how. He, he really would have liked to have redeemed us, but we were just too bad. Like every time he tried to do it, every chance he gave us, we just thwarted his plan. And yet that's not what we find in our Bible anywhere. In fact, when we get to that period of our Bibles where Israel is scattered throughout other nations, God starts sending prophets to them there. Not to explain why he can't keep his promise to them, but to make more promises to them, to clarify his garden promise all the more clearly and recommit himself to it more strongly than ever before. They should look for that deliverer to be born in a town called Bethlehem. Where was Bethlehem? Israel. What was Israel doing right now? Lying desolate. What was God saying to these people? He was indicating, I'm going to restore you again. I'm going to bring you back out of captivity. The power that you're under right now, I'm going to set you free from. And I'm going to be faithful to keep my promise to you. They would know who this deliverer is, for he will be born of a virgin. And God would send a messenger to prepare the way for this deliverer, so they would know who he is. And somewhat mysteriously, and probably in a way that they couldn't even comprehend fully at the time, there are indications that this coming deliverer would lay down his life, would die. And where there was death, there would be life. He would be raised from the dead. And these were new promises, radical promises that God was making to His people who had been unfaithful to Him. And yet these promises, so wonderful as they are, fell for the most part on hard hearts and on deaf ears. And eventually the prophets fell silent. And for a time... God was silent. He had nothing else to say. It's not that he was silent and mad and grumpy in the corner, but he had simply said all there was to say at that time. And 400 years went by between the Old Testament and the verse that we just read this morning in Acts chapter 17. Four years of silence, and then suddenly we hear these people in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, saying, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They're everywhere. They were over there doing, the, doing their thing, turning the world upside down. They've been going across here, and now they've come here too. And they're turning the world upside down here as well. And who were these people that the Pharisees were talking about exactly in Acts chapter 17? They were Christians. They were followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. It was the church in Thessalonica that they were saying, these people are turning the world upside down. But the Jews were ever so slightly mistaken in their claim when we consider it carefully, because the truth of the matter is that the 
snake-crushing deliverer of Genesis chapter 3, who had been promised by God, had come. And Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that promise, the deliverer that God had provided for mankind, He had come. And He had hung upon a cross at Calvary. And there, He had died for our sin. And there, upon the cross, is where Jesus crushed the head of the serpent with one epic blow. There, upon the cross, Christ the Deliverer overcame the power of Satan. And now, life by life, through the good news of His work, of His finished work upon the cross, He was the one who was turning this world upside down one life at a time through His church. Through the good news of the Gospel. And it was the Gospel that Paul and his companions were traveling around Asia and Europe at that time, proclaiming wherever they went. It's the Gospel that they were proclaiming there in Acts chapter 17, in verse 3. It says that Paul was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Paul was proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the promised deliverer, the Messiah, the one whom God, from the beginning, had said He would send, who would come to set us free from the power of sin and death and reconcile us through faith in Him to Himself again. And if that story that we have considered this morning is true, and I believe that we can know it is true because Christ rose from the dead proving that it is true, If this story is true, then there are three ways today that you and I ought to respond to this story. And here are three T's for the purpose of helping us be able to remember more easily how each one of us here should respond to this story today. First of all, we ought to turn. We ought to trust And we ought to tell. And as I close, we'll just consider these three responses. First of all, we ought to turn. This is a story that tells us our relationship with God has been broken. It's been destroyed by sin. And if we deny that sin has caused a problem and brought separation between us and God, if we just assume that somehow God is going to look at us and and be happy that we're trying our best, that we're doing our best, then we are without any hope of redemption. We are completely and utterly lost. Our first response to this great story that we've considered together today 
must be to recognize our own sin. To recognize the greatness of what the, the power of sin has done in separating us from this loving, merciful God and turn away from that sin. And turn to God for mercy. And that's what it means to repent of sin. And if you're here today and you, know, you, you came here today as a new person just to figure out what Christianity is all about, figure out why these Christians gather together week by week. And you've heard that word repentance and it just sounds kind of groggy and old. And That's all repentance is. That's all we mean when we talk about repentance as Christians. We recognize what sin has done in our life. We recognize it is the root cause of our great problem. And we turn away from it in hope of mercy from God. We should repent. We should do that. You should do that today in response to this great story. And then, secondly, we should trust. Specifically, we should trust in the Deliverer that we spoke about today. The one whom God promised to send to free us from our sin. We should trust in Him. Because as we've seen today, there are no amount of second chances. There are no amount of fresh starts that will be enough for you, for any of us. We cannot free ourselves from Satan's power, from sin, from death. Where Adam failed, where Noah failed, where Israel failed, where David failed, you're next. You're next in the line. You will fail too. We will all fail in our own attempts, in our own works to set ourselves free. The combined, combined strength of all the military powers in this world with all the nuclear arsenal would not even put a dent in that power that sin has over our lives. It is Christ and Christ alone who has conquered Death, who has crushed that power. And in Him alone lies our only hope of salvation, of being set free from the power of sin and death. And therefore we should turn from sin. And we should trust in the One whom God has provided for us. And we should trust in Him fully. And we should trust in Him alone. And having turned and having trusted Thirdly and finally, we ought to tell. Turn, trust, and tell. And just think for one moment about your own personal testimony of how you came to turn and how you came to trust in Christ. Are you perhaps here today because someone at some point took a moment to tell you the story that we just looked at together this morning? Was your life turned upside down by the power of the gospel when somebody just took a moment to tell you this story? Because that's how it works. That's how lives get changed, transformed, turned upside down when we tell people the gospel. Because we can be the nicest neighbors that anybody could wish for. 
We could be the best colleagues at work, but our pleasantries will save no one. Our morality may make the lives of those around us more pleasant, but they will never take the life of an upside-down sinner and turn their life upside down and restore them to God. The gospel alone has the power to do that transforming work in their lives. And if we desire as Christians to see people turned upside down by the power of the gospel and restored to God as we have been, then we must tell them this good news. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so, I will close today with this verse. I'm not sure. Maybe the tech guys have got it up on the screen for us. Psalm 9, verse 1. And It is my desire to respond to this story in this way. And I want to encourage you to think about this verse from Psalm 9, verse 1 as your own response to this great story that we've just looked at today. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great story of redemption. Thank you for your word that we can open it with the story of creation and see it fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, our great hope and our deliverer. Thank you for the way you so clearly revealed to us that we have no hope other than him. Thank you that you so clearly revealed to us the circumstances of our own sinfulness and the consequences of separation from you, eternal separation from you. Thank you for showing us so clearly in the person of Jesus Christ where our hope lies, where we can place our trust in order to receive from you the salvation that you desire to give and bring in our lives. And God, would you give us here today who trust in you, who have turned and trusted in you, would you give us the boldness to go and tell this story to those around us, as Paul did in Thessalonica, so that we in our own lives would see that great response to the gospel in our generation too. We ask God that you would do that, that you would also give us the boldness to stand against the opposition that we will face, that violent, angry mob we see in Thessalonica in Acts 17 is right here today too in our generation, those who will aggressively and violently even stand against us, seeking to silence us, seeking to extinguish the hope as of the gospel has always been Satan's goal. Give us the boldness we need to continue to faithfully tell this great story in our generation for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.